Welcome back to the Someone to Tell To podcast. We couldn't be more excited about this episode. Uh, Every episode has meant a great deal to us and all of the people that we get to spend time with and just have a good conversation. But this one, maybe more than most, we uh, felt Tim Shriver, our guest, spoke our language. He just embraces the values of someone to tell it to. Uh, We remember we've been reading his most recent book, and early in his book, Tim Shriver mentioned a teacher, Richard Rohr, who has also been a teacher of ours. And Richard said, people on the margins of any group hold the secret to the wholeness of that very group because as soon as we stop pushing people out and start letting them in, we become whole. This episode ultimately is about becoming whole. As Richard Rohr mentioned, we become whole by being with people on the margins, by entering into their lives, by seeing them as equals, as valuable, as worthy of the same love that we ourselves have received and want to receive. And the one thing about Tim that we, we, we learned very quickly, he is a great listener. Mm-hmm. As practitioners of listening and advocates of, of intentional, compassionate listening, Tim embodies it fully, and um, that makes us happy. We talked a lot about faith, and he comes from a Catholic tradition, a Catholic upbringing. I was reminded of Mother Teresa, Saint Mother Teresa, who has often been called the saint of the gutters because she spent most of her life with people in Calcutta on the margins. And I think that that's a call to action that is maybe more needed now in the world than ever before, ultimately about suffering with people. What a privilege it is to talk about this today and to have Tim Shriver as our guest. Timothy Shriver is the husband of Linda Potter and the father of five adult children, the grandfather of three, including a new granddaughter who was born very recently. He leads the Special Olympics International Board of Directors and is the co-founder of UNITE, an initiative to promote national unity and solidarity across differences. Dr. Shriver is a leading educator who co-founded and currently chairs the Collaborative for Academic, Social, and Emotional Learning, the leading school reform organization in the field of social and emotional learning. He is also a member of the Council on Foreign Relations and president of the Joseph P. Kennedy Jr. Foundation. Tim earned his undergraduate degree from Yale University, a master's degree from Catholic University, and a doctorate in education from the University of Connecticut. He has produced four films and is the author of the New York Times bestseller, Fully Alive, Discovering What Matters Most and has written for dozens of newspapers and magazines. He has also co-edited his newest book, The Call to Unite, Voices of Hope and Awakening. Tim resides in the Washington, D.C. area. So we really hope you'll enjoy this episode today. Well, welcome to the Someone to Tell To podcast, Tim. We're so grateful for our conversation together with you today. Nice to be with you. Thank you for having me. So before we get into the meat of what we're going to talk about today, let's talk about being a grandparent. We know we've listened (laughs) to several of your interviews and you love talking about your grandkids. 
Uh, how about you give us just a snapshot of what, what it's like to be a grandparent? I mean, you know, I think it sort of sounds trite to say that the greatest thing in life is being a parent. And uh, until you find out that you're a grandparent. <laughs> and then it seems like your kids fade in terms of their value and quality in the world and their children start to start to rise up and you start to see this uh, this long stretch of time. I, I, you know, today, the day we're, we're, we're meeting together is my uh, eldest grandson's, uh, Francis's third birthday. And it sounds crazy, but I just can't believe he's three. He's big. He talks. He's on his bike. He's moving around. He's going to school. Um, grandchildren feel like all of a sudden, like the whole time compression opens up, you know, when you have your own children, I feel like all of a sudden you're revisiting your childhood and then you're sort of seeing your parents from when you were a kid and remembering that you first went to school and what was it like? And you take your kids to school and, and then you're imagining, well, what were my parents like now with grandchildren, you get to all of a sudden anticipate what their world will be like. Mm. And before you know it, I can live with my mom as a little girl in the early 20th century, or I can live with my grandson as a grown man in the late 21st century. And I feel like I'm just able to live in and touch different parts uh, of, ex of the experience. Uh, and it just kind of stretches you out. I don't know how else to describe it. I mean, it's, it's crazy, joyful, wonderful. Mm. Michael, you got any comments about uh, grandparenting? It's absolutely right. I feel the same <laughs> way. It's, it's just the, one of the big, just the biggest joy of my life. Yeah. So Tim, one of the quotes that we love to, to share in some of our writing and our speaking is actually a famous quote by former U S vice president, Hubert Humphrey. And the quote is this, he said, the moral test of government is how that government treats those who are in the dawn of life, the children, those who are in the twilight of life, the elderly and those who are in the shadows of life, the sick, the needy, and the handicapped. You and so many members of your large extended family have spoken similar words and dedicated your lives fulfilling those words. What has been the inspiration for that dedication? Well, it's a beautiful quote from uh, Vice President Humphrey, and uh, I was lucky enough to meet him when I was a little kid, and uh, he and my dad had a wonderful relationship um, always admired his ebullience, his energy. I think what you don't necessarily hear in that quote uh, is not just the responsibility or the test of government, but the joy of a, of a people, the joy of a community is the way. Listen to how we just started this, talking about little children at the dawn of life. Mm -hmm. uh, we who are talking about them are in the twilight of life. Uh, and we come together to celebrate people, at least in my view, to discuss and celebrate people who are at the margins or the shadows of life. These are not burdens. These are the joys of a community. Uh, these are the things that make life meaningful. These are the moments in life that connect us to something bigger than any one of us. Uh, and so by broadening the circle of light so that there are no shadows, it's delightful. It's, it's a joyful thing by stretching ourselves to see people in the twilight of their lives as full of wisdom and, and humor and, and depth and experience. Wow. Children sparkle to their grandchildren for that reason. And for all of us to see children at the dawn of life is to see possibility, is to see those big eyes of a two or a four or a 10-year-old looking out at the world, wondering, 
hoping, guessing, maybe there's a place for me. Maybe there's someone who will love me. Maybe there's a game I can play. Maybe there's a race I can run and win. I mean, that's the excitement of life. These are the things that make life worth living. They are not just a test. They are the joy of life. My parent, you know, I, I was feel so lucky to be raised by people who didn't teach us. I, maybe this won't sound right. I don't feel like they taught me charity. Uh, they did teach me about justice, but they taught me about the fulfillment, the happiness. I mean, if I was with my parents on a trip and we got to visit Peace Corps volunteers, for instance, in a developing country, that was the best part of the trip. I mean, I don't want to say going back to the hotel pool wasn't fun too, but uh, <laughs> sure it was. But really, I mean, we have these sparkling images in my mind as eight or ten or twelve years old, visiting a job corps centers and visiting Peace Corps volunteers and Vista volunteers in the United States. I mean, so. Uh, I think Senator Humphrey, you know, he was known as a happy warrior. I think that was the expression that was used to describe him sometimes. You hear in his words the test. And, well, it should be a test. But we should pass the test because it's the joy of a great country. And to the extent our country has been great, it has met that test. And when our country has not been great, it has pushed people to the margins. It has forgotten the gifts of the twilight years and it has overlooked children at the dawn of life. And that's when our country has fallen short. Well, we consider it a, a sacred honor to do the work that we do, to, we hope, help to touch the hearts and the lives of those who are in the margins and in the twilight years and in, in their early years, the dawn. Um, it, it is sacred work. A couple of years ago for Christmas, uh, Tom gave me your book, Fully alive, discovering what matters most, and and just the, the the name itself spoke to both of us. Literally, that is the only book I've ever read that made me cry. He also gave me that book for a very personal reason too, because I have a son. His name is Matthew, and he lives with severe intellectual disability and autism. Matthew uh, has participated over the years in local Special Olympics events in the Harrisburg, Pennsylvania area where we live. And, uh, in fact, his bedroom uh, today is lined with dozens of the ribbons that he received, mostly for participation. Um, but then the one gold medal he received for swimming, uh, which was just such a, a thrill for, for us. So for those who may not know, uh, we'd love for you to tell us about the Special Olympics and the very personal reasons why the Special Olympics was formed. Yeah, well, first of all, thank you for... It sounds like buying at least two copies of Fully Alive, which is really generous of you, and I appreciate your taking some time. I hope those tears were release tears, you know, uh, brought brought to you by the athletes and the and the great heroes of that movement. Uh, I, I tried to be their scribe, um, but it it is the lessons that came from them. And I use the word movement, not organization. It's a movement that's just over fifty years old. Um, it was founded uh, in the late 1960s. Uh, it was founded in the year, by most estimates, you might say it was 69, but 68, when the population of people with intellectual disabilities in institutions in the United States was at its peak. So this was founded not at a time of uh, uh, where the tide had turned, but where more and more Americans, often children, were being placed into institutions for life uh, 
because they had an intellectual disability, because the culture at that point had determined that they were too different to belong, too different to matter, too different to be included, just plain too different. I locate the beginnings, not because that's where we are today, but because what the genius of the Special Olympics movement was, was that it didn't fight against the institutionalization movement. It offered an alternative. And it didn't primarily try to demonize parents or scientists or professionals who had found themselves giving their children or caring for children in these institutions for life. It tried to show them uh, a new transformational alternative, encounter, play, skill, celebration, medals, community, understanding. All of a sudden, it seemed like even in the first event in 1968, which was just one event, wasn't another event for another two years, uh, all of a sudden, those few people, only maybe only a thousand people and maybe a couple other thousand who read about that first event in Chicago in 1968, it was as though blinders were removed. Rayford Johnson describes it beautifully. You know, he, the, the iconic American athletic hero, the cover of Time magazine, American hero, the decathlete, the Olympic gold medalist, was on the field at that first Special Olympics event in 1968 saying, I saw smiles the world had never seen. <laughs> I knew I was seeing something that had never been seen before. The awakening to the gift, the all of a sudden visceral sense in which, oh my God, we've been blind. You know, we've been blind here. Now, uh, fast forward 50 years, there are 100,000 Special Olympics games every single year around the world of that kind. The kind... Uh, your son has participated in uh, in Pennsylvania, track meets, bowling competitions, volleyball tournaments, uh, basketball uh, unified games, fall games, winter games, spring games, summer games. Uh, the list goes on and on. 99% of the power behind it is volunteers. So you start to get the sense of what that looks and feels like today. It feels like the world's grassroots voluntary classroom of human giftedness and inclusion. It's not primarily a swimming event, right? <laughs> Everything we do depends on getting in the pool and giving your son the chance to swim and win that gold medal. But what it means, what it means to those around the pool, those who got the privilege of watching your son swim, those who got the privilege of seeing him uh, on the a medal stand, uh, being given that gold medal, what it means to them and to all of us, and therefore I hope to him, was that we want to build a world where everyone belongs. Exactly. I mean, it shouldn't be so hard, but in the Special Olympics world, you get to shift out of the world that says, I classify you by your IQ, I classify you by your skin color, I classify you by your wealth, I classify you by your age, your looks, your power, your influence, your job title, your business card. No more. In the gym, no more. Hmm. We don't classify you by anything except the joy and skill you bring to the moment. And people say, well, that's a nice fantasy world. Why is that the fantasy world? <laughs> 
like who made up the solution that we're supposed to live in a world where everybody feels uncomfortable, anxious, judged, angry, un, uh, lonely, uh, and divided all the time. That's supposed to be real. And the world where everybody feels included and valued and welcomed and celebrated, that's fantasy. I don't think so. Mm. I don't think so. I think the real world is the one in that gym, in that swimming pool. And the world we've constructed too frequently is living by very, very distorted and very, very unhealthy standards. So, you know, we, we stay at this work. We call it the work of inclusion uh, because we think, I think it's the most important issue of our time. I think unless we find the strategies, the teachers, uh, the models for how to create belonging without demonizing and excluding people, unless we solve that problem, we're done. And the people who can teach us how to solve the problem, Michael, are people like your son. I don't say he can learn from us. I don't say he can benefit from being included by us. I say we can learn from him. And I don't say that to sound politically correct, because it's not. I say it because I believe it to be the truth. Well, I just came off of a vacation. Uh, we, uh, my family and I went to Rehoboth Beach, Delaware, where we've gone for the last 25 years. Our son, Matthew, absolutely loves it there. He lives to go there every year. Mm-hmm. And he, sitting by the ocean, uh, right at the edge where the water can wash up over him, um, is just bring, I can't even describe the joy that it brings him, the smile that comes on his face, the, the squealing, and he doesn't talk. So, but we can, he is communicating volumes when sure. he's there. And it, it, it just, it is extremely heartwarming. And what I've learned uh, from not just him being at the beach, uh, which is just a wonderful time together. But what I've learned from him, which I think is just about the greatest gift of all um, that he has taught me is unconditional love Mm. that I can love someone who cannot truly love me back in the ways that other people can. But, but I love him nonetheless because of who he is just because he is And there is, there is no greater lesson than that to, to, to learn that all of us, as uh, all of us human beings, are, need to be, you know, uh, need to be loved unconditionally. That's it. And, uh, you know, that, that, that is something that we strive to do. It's someone to tell it to. It's, it's, it's part of the inspiration for someone to tell it to. Thank your son for teaching that to you. Um, <laughs> And thank you for being willing to have the guts to teach it to the rest of us. Uh, a lot of people would say that sounds nice or wow, that's beautiful, but I don't want any part of that. Or, uh, that's not a real world, right? I can't love that way. And I think what I'm hearing in your example and in his is a, is a firm conviction that this is the big lesson. Uh, and you know, for some reason, we find these big lessons in life, and then we think, well, we, we should get back to important things like, you know, scheduling our, uh, you know, our meetings on our financial situation or our whatever, you know, our restaurant reservations or, you know, our Uber plan or our shopping with our friends or our plan to fix the 
the the outlets in our house or whatever you know that's the real world where that unconditional love stuff that's all nice to have but i gotta you know like wait a minute why why don't we have as human beings it's hard to understand why don't we spend that kind of energy on what matters most you know the great paleontologist the jesuit paleontologist Teilhard de chardin not not so much of a household name but anyway i'll, I'll quote him without quite getting it right wrote i believe around 1950 that he wrote, sometime, this would be approximate, he wrote, sometime after mastering the winds and the waves and gravity, human beings will harness for God the energies of love. Hmm. And then, he writes, for the second time in the history of the world, we will have discovered fire. And sometime after we're done with gravity and wind and wave and every other problem known to us, we'll focus our energy on harnessing the power that your son has taught you with all the same, you know, not just 50,000 NASA engineers, but 50,000 love engineers, Mm -hmm. not just 50,000 employees or 150,000 employees of Uber or Amazon. Those are great organizations. Don't get me wrong but 100,000 employees of the Unconditional Love Laboratory. Imagine. Yeah. we just love to know a little bit about your faith background and how that has informed the work that you do. You write about it often, and, and we know that's a very vital aspect of your life. Yeah, it is a vital aspect of my life. Um, I think. Uh, I think in the end of the day, People get very confused about religion, about faith, about belief. Um, I think we're confused as moderns because uh, we think that faith means you have to abandon your mind. Your mind isn't a good tool because it conflicts with faith. I don't agree with that. Mm -hmm. I think we're confused as moderns because we think Uh, Faith is about myth and uh, personal experience that is just uh, relativized and individualized and arbitrary. I don't agree with that. I think we get confused about faith because we think it's separate from the life we live. Like, oh, loving God, that's not the same as loving Tom or loving Michael. So uh, if I'm going to love God, I've got to love God, not Tom or Michael or Tim or Linda or Rose or George, you know. Uh, so I think our modern mind has been trained to think in very oppositional terms about faith. That's not the way I see it. Uh, I was raised in the Catholic tradition of the Christian community. Uh, a couple of interesting and simple points. Who made you? God made you. Full stop. <laughs> Some might say, well, I don't know if God made me or not. I don't either. But all that's telling me is that I am made with dignity, with purpose, with sacred qualities, as is everyone else. Not just me. Actually, also Tom and Michael, too. (laughs) And not just Tom and Michael, but everybody. So what I would invite people who don't believe to see is that that's starting point of faith simply invites you to recognize in your own experience, don't have to go to the book, 
I mean, we might like to go to the Bible or some might like Quran or Torah, whatever. But first, before you go to the book, just go to your own experience and ask yourself if the wonder that is you and the wonder that is the other people who have been in your life feel sacred, holy, and worthy of dignity. That's the first step. It's not the only step. Second step tends to be something like, what am I made for? Do I have a purpose? Do I belong to some purpose larger than myself? My experience is almost everybody feels that way. People that say, I could care less about religion, still feel like they're drawn into a meaning, uh, a purpose, a destiny that they can't completely understand or control. Drawn forward, drawn out, tugged into. That's a fundamentally religious experience. When you start to move down the line from these experiences to the creeds you find in the Christian tradition, pretty simple statement, God is love. Okay, now we've located a couple of important points. We are made sacred, destined for something sacred, and the way to reach and achieve it in this life is to love one another. To me, that's a pretty important and powerful set of lessons to live by. And my practice in the tradition in which I was raised, my prayer life in the traditions which I've learned over time, my reading of the mystics and other great uh, leaders and, and, and uh, people who's, who've been able to tell us the, the, the powerful stories of their own faith experience, they all end up coming somehow between those three things. You are made with dignity, you are meant for dignity, and the path is love. So uh, I, don't, I hope that comes to people um, as an invitation, whether they're Christian or not, whether they're pastors or not, whether they're men or women, whether they're black or white or rich or poor or gay or straight or Muslim or Jewish uh, or uh, dyed-in-the-wool atheists as an invitation to see my word. The word I like is belief because it comes from the etymology is a little bit to be in love. Belieben is one way of unpacking the word belief. To be in Lieben, in German, love. Uh, to believe is to be in unconditional love with everything. How do you um, help people uh, express a message, um, you know, by embodying a message of love. I think one of the reasons we feel so lonely as a people and as a culture is because we've told people that they have to figure this out by themselves. Uh, uh, you know, the, uh, the self-help section of the bookstore is full. And there's net, in my view, I'm, I, I know a lot of people in self-help. Some people think I'm in self-help. Uh, so I don't, criticize the people in it but it, it's kind of like it's like maslow's self-actualization makes absolutely no sense <laughs> there's no such thing as self-help even to pick up a book you're already, already being helped by someone else <laughs> the writer of the book uh and if you're told that well here's the self-help strategy for finding your dignity or finding your proper weight or finding your way of speaking to your spouse or something like that it's all relational. Uh, so we've got to get back to making the currency of love relationally relevant. It should be relevant in our cultures at work. Now, people would say, well, that doesn't belong at work. That's private. No, it isn't. 
I mean, uh, so many people in, in, in faith traditions teach. I was just talking earlier today about Teresa of Lisieux, who was a, who was a great saint in the Catholic tradition, uh, died at the age of 24. And she described the little way to Jesus. And her whole message was uh, the small acts. So you can bring love to the workplace with just by committing yourself today to see in everyone you see the smile of God. Now, you may not like that language, a sacred smile. You may not like that language, a beautiful smile. <laughs> the religious uh, um, push would be to say, see that sacred smile, that beautiful smile in people you really, really don't like, even people who you might call your enemy. And then the almost saintly move would be to say, risk your own safety for that other person's smile, even the person that has hurt you. Now, that's when you move from enlightened self-interest to loving self-gift. And to me, that's a different, you know, that, that's where our faith traditions strengthen us and give us the kind of moral courage. It's probably, Michael, what you've learned as a dad. Uh, that capacity to give yourself so endlessly and to find that there's more and more in you to give. Uh, I mean, these are, I I think, these are the kinds of discussions we need in popular culture. Imagine if this conversation were being held on the floor of the United States Congress. But I mean, imagine yeah. if every yeah. debate yeah. between a Republican and a Democratic senator or congressperson or mayor or president started out with uh, the first 20 minutes were devoted to shared loves. Mm-hmm. Well, why would we do that when we're trying to make a decision uh, about whose policies we like more? Because that's the number one policy. <laughs> How do we build a shared love of country? I mean, it, we, we really, we've really gotten far away from what matters to most of us uh, all the time. And we, we, we've, got to, we've got to restructure. So for the, all those lonely folks, back to your point, uh, Tom, I think we've got to be honest that we've disappointed you. We've let, uh, our culture has let you down. Our faith traditions have let you down. Our schools have let you down. Our families have often let you down uh, because we haven't prioritized you, the person who's lonely. We haven't prioritized making a place that's safe for you. Uh, And we can do that with humility. Uh, We can do that with sadness to, again, in the language I'm trained in, in in repentance, in a willingness to turn, to return, turn, turn. And in turning, turning, the, the old Quaker hymn goes, we come round right, we keep turning, turning ourselves away from the distractions, the uh, the, the biases, uh, the egoic uh, self-satisfaction towards the openness, towards the trust, towards the love. And we've got to keep turning. We've got to turn hard right now because we're in trouble. Thank you for listening to the Someone to Tell It To podcast. Wonders Found Thrift Shop is proud to be one of its sponsors. Wonders Found is an all-volunteer run thrift shop begun to support our mission team as they rebuild homes in disaster areas. We support local missions, people experiencing homelessness, 
veterans, and children and youth outreaches. We also provide clothing and household items to families displaced by fire or flood. You can learn more at our website, wondersfound.org, or stop in to see what wonders you can find at 7810 Allentown Boulevard, Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. We hope you enjoy the rest of the podcast. We'd love to talk a little bit about your book. And these are the messages that are interwoven throughout the whole book. And again, just applaud you on the work that you're doing at Unite. Um, At one point early on in the book, you talk about Father Greg Boyle. And he founded the world's largest gang intervention rehab organization. And in there, you talk about spiritual evolution means coming to, or he talked about spiritual evolution means coming to see the wholeness of the person as God sees them. And this is compassionate seeing. What a great phrase. Where have you seen this happening and how do we create more of this kind of evolution? You know, Father Greg, boy, I think the beautiful, one of the beautiful lines in there is that you, we go to the margins so that we can erase margins. Right? Mm-hmm. We go to the margins. And if you think about it, the, 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 the lines that we, we have from the prophetic literature, from the great Jewish literature like Isaiah, uh, where he writes so beautifully about giving your cloak to the naked, feeding the hungry, visiting uh, those in prison, healing the sick. Uh, when you do those things, you will be called, in, in Isaiah's words, a healer of the breach. He doesn't say you'll be noted uh, as a high-level donor by your alumni association (laughs) (laughs) or that you'll get your name inscribed on the walls of your religious institution. He says you will be known as a healer of the breach. Um, And Father Greg Boyle is a healer of the breach, the breach, the gap between us, the place that divides us from each other, cross over, heal the breach build the bridge, reach across both ways because the healer of the breach is healed by healing the breach, right? We are all made one when we, when we, when we erase the, the margins because there is no longer anyone excluded from power, but there's also no one guarding and protecting and egoically, fearfully clinging to power, which is many, many people that I know in the way maybe people would say that I grew up holding on, clinging, grabbing, grasping. Uh, You know, Greg Boyle is a great hero, uh, but I think these people are everywhere. I think these, you know, in the book, we have people who are grocery store clerks who write about the experience of trying to have every person that comes down the checkout line uh, feel special for the moment in which they're, uh, they're present to that person in the grocery store line. You have nurses who talk about their acts of kindness and joy and love, even in the face of great despair. You have people like Chef Jose Andres, who talks about an empathy explosion uh, that we need right now. So I think uh, it's the little ways in which we heal breaches. It's uh, in our country today, uh, redoubling our efforts to take chances on ending, take a chance on ending racism. For God's sakes, why don't we take that chance? Now, for goodness sakes, at this point in our history, 100, 200, 300, 400 years later, take a chance. Remove the bias from your eyes. I mean, you know, recognize that it's there. 
turn, turn, repent of it. Heal yourself of that racism. Remove that hatred, that blinder from your life. I mean, there are so many little things we could do that if we did together, my goodness. So I think, you know, a lot of people are waiting for a great leader to come along, a, a political leader, a president. You know, many people applaud. I'm a big fan of President Biden's for the ways in which he's tried to create a language of respect and dignity across the divide. I know other people think he's loathsome and terrible. Um, I just think we've got to stop the othering. In the book, The Call to Unite, um, Voices of Hope and Awakening, is really just a little manual uh, for each one of us. I mean, I try to read a chapter day, and I read the book about eight times. And <laughs> I, I got to tell you, you can go back through it. I don't know if you guys have tried this, but uh, you can read, uh, take a couple of days and, and reread something you read uh, last week, and boom. It's going to be a, it's going to be a timeless resource. Yeah, I hope so. Yeah. We both have had it on Audible, and we're reading reading it on our Kindles as well. And we're we're glad to have it. Yeah, it's very powerful. Thank you. You um, have uh, you've written it that one of the most loving gifts that we can offer each other is a story of how we feel when we've lost control of our lives. We would love for you to talk about the power of telling our stories, the power of vulnerability, the power of of how listening to one another's stories without judgment, without fixing, helps yeah. to bring us together. Please yeah. say say more about that. Well, Dr. Rita Walker in the book, um, uh, a mental health expert, writes uh, that we all can make a difference. And she has her little acronym. She calls it Practice the ABCs. And for her, the ABC goes like this. A is assume you can make a difference. B is be a good listener. And C is the hard one. Cancel judgment. Mm -hmm. Now, all three of those in our culture are under siege. Uh, Many, many, many of our brothers and sisters in our country don't think they can make a difference. Many, 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 many brothers and sisters, especially our leaders, are not good listeners. I know there are many times in my life I've been a horrible listener, and it almost invariably comes out badly. And three, most of us don't know how to cancel judgment or why it's worth trying to do. Now, bring this back to the faith conversation. Uh, I don't know the psalm. You guys are you guys are in you know we, we Catholics don't read the Bible as well as our uh, <laughs> Protestant brothers and sisters. But there is one of the psalms where it the, the line the the famous line the deep calls out to deep. Mm-hmm. What are you guys going to come up with the citation? Or you can Google while we're talking. <laughs> uh, I think it's one of the psalms. Um, But I believe that the reason we become good listeners and cancel judgment isn't because we want to agree with everything the other person is saying. It's so we can hear them at the level of depth. Mm -hmm. What is the hunger they're expressing? What is the desire they're expressing? What is the love they're looking for? What is the pain they're trying to overcome? What is the grief that is holding them bound? Listen for that. Listen for the depth dimension. You can't listen to that if you're judging the person all day. Well, he's a fool, or I don't agree with that, or stop right there. You've just crossed a line, or wait a minute, you don't know my opinion. 
that kind of conversation won't let you hear what's beneath the surface. To hear what's beneath the surface, you have to be a listener and you have to cancel judgment. But the prize is that when you hear at that level, you unlock extraordinary, you unlock what I would almost call like what Einstein says, you either live like nothing's a miracle or everything's a miracle. And all of a sudden, the person you disagree with and the person you may continue to disagree with, somehow you get that little glimpse that they're a miracle. And with that little, maybe it's just the blink of an eye. Oh, my God. She's a miracle. He's a miracle. Oh, my God. Listen. Oh, my God. And maybe something else can, is possible. Because now you've seen that through the grace of God, everything is beautiful. And let's say the person has very toxic views, racist, white supremacist, hateful, angry, arrogant, condescending, whatever. I mean, we've all been all those things, I suppose. Uh, But when you... When you follow Dr. Rita Walker's three rules, which are in the book, then you've got the chance, at least a chance, to let deep speak to deep. Uh, And I believe uh, this is what we need to learn how to do. We need to make that cool. Right now, the cool people are the people that argue, disrupt, interrupt, express outrage, dominate, uh, scream, use invective, throw uh, barbs, come up with extraordinarily mean-spirited ways of describing other people. Those people get all the attention. Bam, bam. Did you see what he just said? Wow. That's not going to get us out of where we are. That's going to get us deeper in the hole. you got to be good listeners. It's exactly why we try to do what we do, because we believe, yeah. we believe that wholeheartedly. Is one of the questions I have for you, how do we get you to be our spokesperson? Because you, uh, <laughs> you are just speaking our language. And, um, well, I'm speaking your language probably because through the, through the grace of God, the language you've been sharing has reached me. Uh, and uh, hopefully I'm a, I'm a good channel for continuing that language to help it grow. But you know, I'm, I'm, I make as many mistakes as the next person, if not more. It's not that any one of us is perfect. It's just that in the effort uh, to, to live in that space where everything is a miracle. And, you know, again, you don't have to take it from Jesus. Don't take it from Moses. Don't take it from Isaiah. Take it from Einstein. <laughs> yeah. You know, uh, or take it from your son. Yeah. Anyone who knows us well knows the the things we write about that we, that we talk about that we we, we try to share uh, is that one of our one of our heroes is the late Fred Rogers he would often use so I'm gonna it's gonna be a par, um, paraphrase this but he would often say and it wasn't a direct quote from from him but it was a quote that a social worker had said to him and he carried around on a piece of paper in his pocket everywhere he went for the rest of his life after he had met her and um, what, what she had said and what he liked to quote was that you cannot help but love a person once you know their story. And that, that came to mind as you were, with what you were just saying. Yeah. And when it comes to stories and going on a deeper level into someone's life, someone's experience, someone's feelings, and you realize where their hurts come from. 
maybe where the things that are rough about them, that we feel are rough about them, maybe why, why mm. that is happening. And we, we just believe that so strongly. And as we get to listen to people's stories, we, we can, we, we, we just grow in, in respect. We grow in, in understanding. We, we, we grow in empathy and compassion for them. And, and so we just, again, uh, just affirm so much, you know, your belief in that too. I think there was another famous politician, Abraham Lincoln, who once said, I don't like that man, so I need to get to know him better. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think the wonderful thing about Fred Rogers, President Lincoln, um, you know, others who have championed these messages is that they don't primarily tell us these messages just to make everybody feel better. They tell us these messages because at some level, these messages have unlocked for them solutions to problems that no one else could solve. Fred Rogers uh, was one of the first people to feature people of color on his show, was one of the first people to feature people with disabilities on his show, was one of the first people to confront the issues around stigma and prejudice against people uh, of LGBTQ uh, 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 patterns and, and convictions and identities. Uh, Fred Rogers felt that message as a call to do and be and act differently. So did President Lincoln, right? So and and so does your neighbor. So does your grandmother. My guess is right that when these are not just patterns of hearing to understand to stand under another's experience, but to do so because it unlocks the creative power of love to actually solve problems. And I, I think that's sometimes lost because sometimes people hear folks like us and, oh, they're all nice about religion and, you know, be good to each other and love and all that good stuff. But, you know, I got real problems. <laughs> Our country has real problems. And it does. And many of us human beings in this country have real problems. They're right. And if what they hear us say is, don't worry about your real problems, just be happy, that's, uh, that's almost insulting, right? But Rogers, for, you know, Mr. Rogers and others, uh, they risked it all to try to get, marshal the power of understanding and love and hearing another story to make change happen. You know, when Dr. King said, hatred can't drive out hatred, only love can, I think what he was saying is love can actually end hatred. It's, I hate to say, it's almost a functional tool. You know, so sometimes if you don't want to go for the, all the nice stuff and all the romantic stuff and all the spiritual stuff and all the religious stuff, and you're just a functional problem solver, I ask people the question, what works to solve problems? Does shaming, blaming, scapegoating, marginalizing, does that work? <laughs> that doesn't work. Ask any husband or wife. <laughs> when you really want to change your spouse, uh, how does it work out when you really shame the heck out of them and really point your finger at them and really, really, really make them feel horrible? How does that work usually? It doesn't usually work that well. I think the the story of the Christian tradition, I think it's also a story of the Jewish tradition, and I suspect, I don't know the story of Islam as well, but I suspect it's the story of, of 
uh, Islam as well, is that the efficient means of bringing about, in the language of Christianity, the kingdom of God. That's a kingdom now. Don't get me wrong. Don't hear from that as like, uh, you know, everything's ended. It's a kingdom. It means a new order. The, the efficient means to bring about a new order. Doesn't everybody want that these days? The efficient means to bring about a new order is to love your neighbor and yourself and your enemy. Hear their story. And when you love your enemy, as I like to say, I don't feel like I can't, it can't be the original person on this. If you love your enemy, you no longer have one. <laughs> wow. Yeah. We all need to hear that message. Angie Dickinson, we'd love for you to tell us about yourself. I live with my husband and three children. I have a daughter who is in college in Boston and a daughter going into um, her senior year in high school and then a son who will be in sixth grade. So we live at the edge of Palmyra and Hershey and um, have lived there for many years and really enjoy that area. Um, both my husband and myself are trained teachers and um, so education is, is something that's very important to us. So you, uh, you're a former educator in the school system. How do you see and how have you seen your previous role in the school system um, intersecting with your role at Someone to Tell It To? Hmm. That's, a, that's a good question. And there definitely are a lot of intersections. Um, I've chosen to work with someone to tell it to because I really feel that this type of listening work allows me to be my best self and to offer my best gifts. And I kind of figured that out um, one day. I was teaching in third grade and there was a little girl who was very, very sad. And I couldn't really get the heart, to the heart of what was going on, but I kept watching. I kept um, looking for any signs, verbal or nonverbal, that she might give. And I finally determined after lunch that the issue was she had forgotten her lunchbox. And in her lunchbox was a chocolate cupcake. And that chocolate cupcake was the last one of a batch that her mother had made. She had wrapped it up and put it in the refrigerator with her lunchbox for this little girl and the little girl had forgotten to bring the lunchbox. And, um, and she was really sad about that chocolate cupcake. But as I listened to her talk further, I realized it wasn't the cupcake. It was the fact that her mother had thought of her, had set that aside, and had planned that for her. And she was going to take that part of her mother's intention with her to school, and she had forgotten it. And that was really the issue. So I sat down with this little girl and I said, let's write a letter to your cupcake and let's thank this cupcake for being there for you. You can tell the cupcake how you feel about forgetting to bring it. And, and she did, she wrote this letter and it was, it was so precious. Dear chocolate cupcake. <laughs> um, after she was done, she folded up the letter, she put it in her book bag and she went on with the day. And I, I really knew that that was my most important work. That was really my most important work. That saying, 
it's only a cupcake, get over it. Um, let's get you something else instead. Would you like this pencil? Um, here's a sticker. None of that. None of that was going to address the real issue of feeling lonely for her mother in that moment. And this is one of the things that we really have noticed with all of our listening interactions, whether they're a third grade child, whether they're an 80-year-old retired nurse, that people are lonely. And when they feel lonely, they crave connection. So the connection that day was in the form of (laughs) a note to a cupcake. Um, But anytime I can help to facilitate that connection um, to alleviate some of that loneliness, that's where my true work is, I believe. It's never about the cupcake, is it? It's always about something else. And what we hope we can do with someone to tell it to is enable people to figure out what it's really about mm-hmm. and and see beyond the surface and to go deeper. And uh, I can only imagine you've had many experiences now that you've been listening and and facilitating time with people and, uh, and giving them the opportunity to share. Could you talk a little bit about someone to tell to his training program, which you've been an invaluable, invaluable part of making happen and continue to refine it and make it even better than it ever has been before? I am really excited about our training program. It continues to just grow and to get better and better. We have such a wonderful group of trainers who each bring a dynamic personality and different experiences, whether they've taught elementary or taught college age or adults. And so we have um, a diverse group of trainers. We have currently three sessions where we, we train our listeners. And those the first two sessions really talk about listening in general, the importance of listening and then the how-tos of listening. And then session three is for people who have finished sessions one and two and would like to become actual volunteer listeners with someone to tell it to. That talks a little bit more about our organization and some of the things that we do as listeners for someone to tell it to. For instance, we always work in pairs. Um, And just making sure that our listeners are able to understand those things that are important to us as an organization. And then after you go through those trainings, we have ongoing monthly training and other opportunities for listeners to really practice and to get better and better. And I will say one of my favorite things about the job and the role that I have right now is that... Um, it's it's a definitely a perk is that when you are a part of a listening organization you always have wonderful people who will listen to you when needed and that's just wonderful Um, everyone down to um, Clark who is who is here working with us today he's an expert in sound and technology But because he is a part of this organization, I know that at the drop of a hat, he is there for me. He will listen to me. And I just value that so much about our whole organization. So we have trained listeners and we have trainers, (laughs) people that do the training. But every single person in this organization has the necessary skills to further 
to further the message of someone to tell it to. I'm proud of that. One of the things that your dad would often say, uh, Sergeant Shriver, is the most important thing that I know about living is love. Nothing surpasses the benefits received by a human being who makes compassion and love the objective of his or her life. For it is only by compassion and love that anyone fulfills successfully their own life's journey. Nothing equals love. It seems as if you live by the same belief. Uh, what, what are some examples, uh, as we wrap up here, uh, about how that belief was instilled in you? Well, you know, I had great parents. Someone said, you know, you had one of the great privileges in life and one of the great curses. Uh, your great privilege was that you had great parents. The great curse you had is you had great parents. <laughs> so, uh, but I'll take the blessing uh, any day. Uh, both my parents... Um, made the work of, um, made work, uh, joyful. Uh, I, I always say that, uh, you know, most people think of, um, uh, the work of justice as serious uh, and the work of joy as light. Um, very few times do you come across people who can tell you that the work of justice is joy and the work of joy is justice. Uh, they did that. They did both. My mom was in the swimming pool when I was a little kid, two, three years old, with children with intellectual disabilities coming from institutions, breaking down walls, changing norms, challenging culture, overturning laws, reversing stigma in the swimming pool in our backyard and having fun doing it. And that's what she taught me. You should do all those things. Uh, wherever you see injustice, stand up against it and do it joyfully and do it voluntarily, and you will find yourself in a position where you will find purpose and meaning and love in life. And she was right. My dad, the same thing. Worked on racial justice going back into the 50s and into the 60s with the Peace Corps and uh, program creator of programs like Head Start and the Job Corps and many, many others, and uh, later in politics and then again in Special Olympics. But all of their work was always about bringing people together in the work of justice, but joyfully doing it. Uh, doing it in a way that tried to include people, unite people, align people together, find that priceless gem, that pearl of great price that sits at the center of each of us and let it out into the open. <clears throat> so, you know, I had an enormously privileged uh, upbringing in that respect. I mean, in many respects, but in that respect was the greatest privilege that I had parents who believed deeply in the power of love and believed deeply in its power to change their country, the country they love. And when I think of it now, you know, it's, <clears throat> it breaks my heart when I hear people don't love the country. Not because I think people should think everything about the country is good. For sure, that's not the case. And not because I think we should sugarcoat the pain that this country has visited upon millions and millions of people. I also think that's, uh, you know, we have, to, we have to face that. That's the truth. But because loving the country means in this context, in the American context, that we are people who relentlessly are willing to give ourselves to trying again. We don't give up here. We don't give up in this country. Other countries, people say in Europe, oh, Americans are so naive, are so idealistic. No, that's not naive. That's the heart committed to and open to relentlessly willing to try again 
That's what I love about this country. And that's what my parents taught me to love, that when you see injustice, meet it. When you see hatred, oppose it. And when you see exclusion, cross the line. Do it with love and do it again and again. That's the American way and that's the human way in some respects. And certainly it's the uh, religious way. And you don't have to make any distinction between those, between your faith, your politics, your nationality, and your human destiny. All of those things are brought to life in the work of justice and joy. Tim Shriver, uh, thank you so much for joining with us today. This conversation was tremendous. It could go on and on. Uh, We appreciate your values. We appreciate the legacy from which you have come. We appreciate the legacy that you are continuing to help change this world and to make it better and to fill it with love. And um, we are very grateful for that. We're very grateful for you and all that you do. Thank you for having me. And thank thank you you for being, you know, a fellow travelers on this road to try to unite our country around uh, the qualities of heart and soul and mind that can make us a better country. And uh, uh, there's no time like the present. Uh, And the urgency is high. The risks of this moment are serious. Uh, the despair around us, but all the more reason for those of us who share this sense of conviction that both our faith and our minds uh, can come together now across these divides and find transformational possibilities. This is the story of the book, The Call to Unite. I hope your listeners will consider grabbing a copy. Yes, uh, please more do. more important than grabbing a copy, I hope they'll consider answering the call in whatever way they hear it. Thank you. One of the things that we heard in this interview today, very clearly, very strongly, is is that ultimately, it's all about love. Our purpose in this life is to love one another, to love ourselves, and to show that love in everything we do. We know it's hard. We know, as Tim said, that, uh, you know, we're not perfect. He said he's not perfect at it. And we're constantly trying. But the fact is that we keep trying. We keep trying to love better, to listen better, to care better, to, to just be the kind of people who help others, help others to live better lives. So we hope you heard that today. We didn't asked him about this, but I know we saw so many parallels to one of our favorite sermons of all time is by Bishop, Dr. Bishop Curry. And during the royal wedding a few years ago, talked about that love. And he kept using this phrase over and over in his sermon that love is the way. And I think we were reminded over and over today by Tim that love is the way forward. Um, It can solve so many of the issues that we're seeing globally, issues of disconnection and loneliness, issues of conflict, politics, um, just disagreements, if we could only love. So love is Tim's driving force. It's his reason for serving. It's his life's mission. And we want it to be our life's mission as well. 
So we're grateful that you joined us today. We hope that you will continue to join us. We're going to take a little break for a few weeks and start a new season. It'll be very soon. And we thank you for being with us this season. We thank all of our supporters. We continue to get new supporters to the Someone to Tell a Two podcast. And we hope that if you liked this episode, if you've liked other episodes, and you've been listening, that you will consider supporting too. Because uh, we, we want to continue to share messages such as Tim shared today with the entire world to help inspire people, to motivate people, to remind people of what matters, of what is important, and how listening truly can change the world. As we said earlier, Tim was a great listener, and um, we hope that we will continue to be able to have other great listeners on this podcast, and with your support, that can be possible. So, until we listen again.